To those of you online, I welcome you. I, I still have my hopes that you will join us soon in this person-to-person worship time. My sermon this morning is entitled, The Will of God. And my text is the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You have the handouts, I believe. You have the sermon outline. You have the text. You have the title, all for your easy reference. You know, we just sang, I surrender all. And rather than making a lot of comments on that obvious tone and message of that song, is that it just blends in when I start the sermon. And as you know, every sermon I deliver, it is always my intention to deliver God's complete message. And therefore, I always pray that I will successfully deliver all of his points. And so I've always looked to Psalm 1914 for his anointing on these, my words, but his thoughts. And so Psalm 1914, so dear Lord, this morning let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. You know, the wisest thing that you will ever do in your life is to find the will of God and do it. And this is also one of the greatest lessons parents can ever teach their children. And I don't think any pastor has ever been asked a question more than this one. How can I know the will of God for my life? And unfortunately, many people think that finding God's will is like hide-and-seek. It's like trying to hunt for Easter eggs in very tall grass. Well, let me give you a comforting thought. You don't find God's will. God's will finds you. Did you know that God is more anxious for you to find his will and to know his will than we are to find it? It's really not your responsibility to find the will of God. It is your responsibility to do the will of God. If God wants you to know his will, it is his responsibility to reveal it. It is then your responsibility to obey it. And in our text, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, we have God's method on how to know his will for our lives. And we're going to learn that before we can know the will of God that we don't know, we must do the will of God that we do know. And there are three steps that must be taken in order to get us in a position where God can reveal his will to us. So first in your outline, consider a personal presentation must be given. You know, as any parent knows in watching their child to learn to walk, that before they can take the second step, they must first take the first step. And so the first step to knowing the will of God is the step of surrender. And so verse 1 of our text states, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You cannot say to God, tell me what you want me to do, and then I will decide if I want to do it. 
Learn this principle. Before God will reveal his will to you, you must surrender your life to him. You must literally make a present of your life to God. Presentation always comes before revelation. Now, what is the motivation for presentation? Why should we surrender our lives and sacrifice our bodies to God? Well, the reason is found in four words. The mercies of God. If someone had your life in their very hands and they were justified in taking your life but mercifully spared your life, would you not say that you owed that person your very life? Absolutely. And that is why Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 uses the word, therefore. For eight chapters, Paul has been talking about the mercies of God. In the first three chapters, he talked about the mercy of salvation. In chapters 4 and 5, he talks about the mercy of justification. In chapters 6 and 7, he talks about the mercy of sanctification. In chapter 8, he talks about the mercy of glorification. Now, to put it simply, God saves us because of his mercy. Even though we are guilty, he justifies us because of his mercy. And after saving us and justifying us, he cleanses us and makes us useful because of his mercy. Now, all these marvelous mercies have been made possible by the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Paul's point is this. Because Jesus died for us, we have to live for him. Because Jesus gave his life for us, we ought to give our life to him. And because we were saved through his sacrifice for us, we are to live in sacrifice to him. That is why Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now normally, a sacrifice is something that is killed. And yet we find that God demands not only the sacrifice, but also the sacrificer. You see, in the Old Testament, God wanted the sheep. But in the New Testament, God wants the shepherd. The reason why he wants your body is this. If anything has your body, it has you. If we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, that's what he's requesting. Incidentally, if you think about it, this has implications for the abortion issue. One of the popular arguments for abortion is a woman has a right to her own body. Well, first of all, it's not her body. It belongs to God. But even if her body is her body, a woman who is pregnant should offer her body as a living sacrifice for that unborn baby rather than offering that unborn baby as a sacrifice for her living body. Now, the very expression, living sacrifice, is really strange. It's an oxymoron. <coughs> an oxymoron is a figure of speech where you find two words together that are mutually contradictory. For example, pastor, lawyer. <laughs> Normally, if you sacrifice something, it's dead. If it's not dead, you haven't sacrificed it. 
We are told here to to be a living sacrifice. And so to understand that, you have to simply substitute the words sacrificial living. No, we are to give ourselves to God in sacrificial living. When you sacrifice something, you give up all possession. You give up all ownership and all control over that. You know, in the Old Testament, there was no such thing as a partial sacrifice. You didn't sacrifice a part of the lamb. You sacrificed all of the lamb. It was always a total sacrifice with no strings attached. Well, that is exactly what the Lord demands from us. He wants a total sacrifice, a complete surrender of our life to him. I've shared this coming thought in previous sermons, and that is we are to offer to God a living sacrifice, totally and complete, of all that we are, all that we will be, all that we have, and all that we will have. And without that, it is your plan and will, not God's, no matter how spiritual it seems. And then Paul goes on to call this sacrifice a reasonable service. The Greek word for service there is a word that means worship. When you offer to God the sacrifice of your body, when you give to God all that you have and all that you are, that is real worship. And as a matter of fact, the first thing you ought to do every day when you get up is to offer yourself as an act of worship to the Lord. You know, one of the things wrong with the churches today is people feel like they have to wait until Sunday to come to church in order to worship. But I've got news for you. If you have not worshiped before you come to church, you're not ready to worship when you do come to church. And as I previously stated, the word here for service can be translated worship. So another mistake we make is differentiating between worship and service. See, see, we think worship is what we do when we come to worship on Sunday morning. And service is what we do during the week. Well, God has bound the two together. We serve the Lord as we worship him on Sunday, and we worship the Lord as we serve him on Monday. And let me tell you what God expects you to do with worship. He wants you to escort worship into the church. He wants you to enjoy worship in the church. He wants you to expand worship from the church, and he wants you to express worship outside the church. And you can start worshiping God tomorrow by being honest in your business, by working hard for your employer. You can worship God in schools by doing your very best, by being obedient to your teachers, by being respectful to your elders and sharing the Lord Jesus with your classmates. Worship is something you do every moment of every day. And Paul calls this service reasonable. And the Greek word for reasonable is the word that gives us the English word logical. Do you know why it is logical to worship and serve God? Well, if God is who he says he is, and if he does for us what he says he has done for us, it just makes sense to worship. There are some people who think they have done God a big favor if they just believe in him. I want you to think about something. 
It is illogical and unreasonable to simply believe in God and do nothing else. If you really believe in God, then you will worship God, you will love God, you will serve God, you will trust God, and you will obey God. Secondly, your outline consider a powerful transformation that should be granted. Our text, verse 2, states, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, right away, two words jump out. Conform and the word transformed. May I tell you that one of two things is happening to you even now. You're either being conformed or you're being transformed. Every person on planet Earth is either a conformer or a transformer. Now, for every positive, as you know, there is a negative. So first we'll see the negative, and then we'll see the positive. The word conform comes from a root word that gives us the word scheme. What Paul is saying is don't let the world force you or fool you into living according to its schemes. I like the way the Phillips Bible translates it. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. The Living Bible says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Do you know what a chameleon is? A chameleon is a reptile that changes color with its surroundings. It takes on the color of whatever's around it. In other words, it conforms. That word has the connotation of giving an outward expression that really does not reflect an inward condition. So the point is this. As a Christian, don't let the world make you look on the outside differently than you really are on the inside. And may I be painfully honest? One of the hindrances to the unsaved that come to church are spiritual chameleons. These are people who come to church and while they are in the church, they take on the color of sanctity, holiness, and righteousness. They sing praises, bow their heads to pray, drop a few dollars in the offering plates, listen to the sermon, and glad hand everybody on their way out of the church. But when they leave the church, they take on the color of carnality and worldliness. They will go to a company party and drink because everybody else is drinking. When they're in the office, they tell dirty jokes just like everybody else. Their language becomes colorful and expressively vulgar. May I say a word to all of us who claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ. God is looking for us to live on Monday what we say we believe on Sunday. We're not to be conformed, we are to be transformed. We're not to be conformers, we are to be transformers. The Greek word for transform can be translated into English as the word metamorphosis. A metamorphosis is a change on the outside that comes from the inside. Many of you know this, for example, a butterfly is the result of a metamorphosis. 
It's hard to believe that a slimy, grimy caterpillar that crawls its way around the ground forms a cocoon around its body. And before long, within that cocoon, wings and legs and a body sprouts forth. And out of that cocoon comes a beautiful butterfly. It was changed on the outside because of a change on the inside. You know, it has been said, God formed man. Sin deformed him. And Jesus Christ transforms him. And the good news for all of us and I, is, that, is this. The Lord Jesus can transform anybody. And when Jesus comes into your life, a transformation does take place. When Jesus Christ comes into, into your life, the world should see on the outside of you the reflection of the Jesus that is now on the inside of you. Allow me to illustrate the difference between confirmation and transformation. If the world looks at me and sees a mirror that is its own reflection, that is confirmation. But when the world looks at me and sees a window, and in that window they see Jesus, that is transformation. Now this transformation is to take place in the mind. Paul says, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now why the mind? Because the mind is the source of the thought, and the thought is the seed of the deed. It's not at all coincidental that Paul mentions the body in verse 1 and the mind in verse 2. In verse 1, he says we are to sacrifice our bodies. In verse 2, he says we are to sanctify our minds. Doctors now know that our bodies inevitably, inevitably become what our minds harbor. In fact, the connection between the state of mind and the physical condition of the body is so strong that it is now estimated that 70% of all Americans go to doctors for treatment when there is nothing wrong. Also reports now indicate that 52% of American men and women who are seeing psychologists and psychiatrists do so when it is essentially only their thinking and spirituality that is all wrong. Of course, the other 48% do need help. But Jesus, in my mind, is the ultimate cure. I'm a football fan. And always, without exception, especially in college, you hear a football coach make a statement like this. Whoever controls the line of scrimmage will control and win the game. Generally true. Well, in the Christian life, the mind is the line of scrimmage. That is where the enemy seeks to control us because if he can influence our minds, he can control our behavior. And that is why we must saturate our minds with the word of God because it is the word of God that fills our minds with the wisdom of God. And it is the wisdom of God that gives us the ability to discern, define, and to do the will of God. But listen, God does not reveal his will to conformers, but only to transformers. Third in your outline, consider a purposeful revelation that will be gained. After the presentation and transformation comes the revelation. All of this 
in order that you may, verse 2, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Now please listen very carefully to this next statement. It is the will of God to reveal his will to anyone who is willing to do his will. But I want to show you what it is about the will of God that should make you want it to begin with. First of all, God's will is profitable. We read here that God's will is good. Now, if that is true, you should never be afraid of the will of God. You can always know that the will of God, not only is it always good, but it is always better for you than anything else that might lie outside of the will of God. And that is why the will of God is not just a duty. It's a privilege. It's not something you have to do. It's something you get to do. But the will of God is also pleasing. We read here it is acceptable. In other words, God's will will not only be good for you, it will be acceptable to you. In fact, if you are right with God, the only place you can be happy is in the will of God. And God's will is also perfect. Now, the last time I checked, you just can't beat perfection. You see, this is the real crux of the issue with the will of God. And that is, your heavenly Father loves you so much. He doesn't want what is good for you. He doesn't even want what is better for you. He wants what is best for you. He wants what is perfect. And what is perfect is his plan for your life. Lastly, in your outline, consider number four, the conclusion. Now what? Knowing God's will... And doing God's will is our call to worship, our call to service. So that as verse 2 says, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And while we understand worship to be the central and most integral, integral part of our relationship with God, it is often misinterpreted to be a simple waving of the hand, speaking words of adoration, or attending a servant's once or twice a week. And though each of these instances are a part of worship, they are not the totality of worship. Worship has less to do with the tempo of a song and more to do with whether one's heart is making melody with the will of God. It has less to do with whether one's hands are lifted than it has to do with whether a person's heart is lifted to the standards of God's desire. If you are really to grasp what it means to know God's will and worship the Lord, it begins by removing our concept of worship from merely a few rituals or routine acts and understanding that it is about a lifestyle of serving the Lord at all times in every place and toward every soul that we encounter. And as Christians, we are called to worship the Lord God. We are called to a level of loyalty and commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are called to be servants of God, not just a Sunday morning pep club. In churches, they offer clap offerings. And I'm embarrassed because some of those clap offerings don't even measure the intensity of the clapping that goes on at football games. We are called to live lives 
that are saturated with the desire to fully be committed to God. Our worship, our lives of service, are to be so aligned with God's plan and purpose for us that in all that we do, we have one central aim, to be who God needs us to be, where God needs us to go, so that all we do is what God needs us to do. Listen. We are God's chosen vessels. We are his vessels to usher the power and the presence of God onto drug-infested drug street, street corners, into the wounded hearts of those that have experienced disappointment and suffer with distrust. We are to pour God's love into the sin-filled minds of those that don't know that the love of God has been given to them and ultimately to this world that questions whether or not God exists. And if he does, does he even care? Our call to worship is the same as our existence in Christ because we are the vehicles through which God will change a world. Ours are the lives that will usher the kingdom of God into a world of darkness. If we obey his will and worship, we will impact every community, encourage every soul, strengthen every family, and raise our own lives from the rubble of sin into the beauty of salvation. And today I want to remind us that we are called to worship, called to service. How are you going to answer the call this morning? By first knowing the will of God and then doing it. Amen. Now service is over. When you leave here, God to be prepared to expand worship. And you will do so by expressing worship before the world. Amen. Amen. See you next week.